sermon for our scripture this morning will be from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Jeronesis. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated, friends. Friends, would you please take a moment now and pray? Would you pray that God would speak to us through his word? Would you, right where you are, pray for yourself, pray for those around you, and if you would, please pray for me that God would use this time for his end. Our Father and our God, as we approach the preaching of your word this morning, we ask that you would use your word to speak to your people. We know that apart from the ministry of your spirit, there is nothing to be gained here. So we ask that you would come and do your work, the work that no preacher can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you understand the number one? Do you understand the number two? Now you're probably sitting there thinking, of course, Riker, I understand the number one. Yes, I also understand the number two. Thank you very much for insulting my intelligence. Uh, 
but I, I promise I, I'm going somewhere with this. How about 52? Do you feel like you have a pretty good grasp on 52? It is, of course, the number of playing cards in a deck of cards, 52 cards. And I'm betting you have a pretty good grasp on 52. But what about 8.065817 times 10 to the 67th? That is how many possible orders those 52 cards could be shuffled into. How many different combinations? And it is way outside of my level of comprehension. <laughs> Let me try to illustrate just how large this number is. I want you to imagine that you have a machine that every second shuffles up this deck of cards into a brand new order that it's never been shuffled into before. In this imaginary world, every day you play the lottery. When you win the lottery, about once every 80,000 years or so, you go outside and you put a toothpick on the ground. Meanwhile, every second, a new order of cards never before seen in this experiment shows up in the deck. When you win the lottery again, you put a second toothpick in front of that first toothpick. When the toothpicks stretch around the world, you start stacking them on top of each other. Meanwhile, every second, a new order of cards is showing up in the deck. When your toothpicks reach the height of the moon, now when you win the lottery once every 80,000 years, instead of adding one toothpick that now circles the world and reaches to the moon, you remove one. Meanwhile, every second, this deck is shuffling and a brand new order of cards is showing up in the deck. After you have removed all of the toothpicks, you start adding them again. Meanwhile, every second, a new order of cards is showing up in the deck. And when that's finally finished, when every possible order has been done, you would have a second wall of toothpicks stretching around the world, 24,000 miles high. Even 24,000 is outside of my level of understanding. I, I understand a mile. I get it. I, I have walked a mile. I, I could walk a mile. 24,000? That, that's unfathomable to me. I can't picture it. See, we're, we're good with, with the tangible, with what we can hold, see, observe, taste. We're not as good with the intangible the supernatural, the paranormal. For our purposes today, I'm going to label it the immaterial. And so it is no surprise then that there are so many misconceptions and misunderstandings about the immaterial, especially when we speak about demons like we are today. Some people fear them needlessly. Some people entirely write off their very existence. Our passage does not allow for that. Our passage today deals with the immaterial in a very concrete and real way. It shows us that it is real. It does really exist. But even more to the point in our context, it quells our fears. And it shows us that Christ is master of the immaterial. Three weeks ago, Craig preached and explained how when Mark shows us Jesus calming the storm... That Christ is, is the master of nature. Mark shows us that in that passage. And here, Mark shows us that Christ is the master of the immaterial. He does that in, in four movements. First, verses 1 through 5, the demonic malice. Second, verses 6 through 13, the meeting of malice and mercy. 
Third, verses 14 through 17, the message moves. And finally, fourth, verses 18 through 20, the making of a missionary. Let's begin in our text now in verse 1, the demonic malice. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of Gerenesis. Now, since it has been three weeks, you might have some questions like, who, what sea, and where on earth is Gerenesis? Well, who is the disciples in Jesus? What sea is the Sea of Galilee? And, and Gerenesis is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, a little south of the middle. It was, by most scholars' accounts, at least predominantly a Gentile region. That is, an area that was made up of people who weren't Jewish. And so we might be led to ask the question, why on earth is Jesus here? Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Dear friends, we must always remember that God's providence does not allow for accidents. This is true in every facet of your life. We have to pay a special attention to that in stories of Christ's life, of his time here on earth. This meeting is no happenstance. So who is this man that Jesus met? Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. Now perhaps he himself had fled here. Perhaps the demons inside of him compelled him to come here, or perhaps he was ran off by the people of the town. Whatever the cause is, he's here, away from any community, away from family. And moreover, no one wants anything to do with him. The rest of verse 3 and verse 4. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Bind him anymore, of course, suggests that at one point they were able to bind him. But now ropes won't do the trick. In fact, Mark makes a point to draw our attention to the fact that not even chains could hold this man. As a result of his torment, he now possesses superhuman strength. So it is no surprise that no one could subdue him. However, unfortunately, that means they could not stop him from harming himself. Verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Night and day. A merism to stretch the totality of the day, like from the top of my head to the tips of my toes, to say my whole body, night and day, all of the time. He had no rest. He was crying out, calling out in a loud voice, if done under demonic influence, probably to instill fear in those who could hear him, if done in the clarity of the man, probably wailing out in, in pain suffering and he was cutting himself with stones now friends this this is gruesome and and horrible it is a picture of what satan's forces desire in a word destruction in his gospel matthew records a story about a child that had something that manifested like epilepsy only this demon 
would throw the child onto fires and into water in an attempt to, Matthew says, destroy him. Later on in this text, as we've already seen, these demons destroy a herd of pigs. And the apostle Peter says, your adversary, the devil, wanders around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It is only by God's grace that these demons here were restrained to merely maiming this man. It is also important at this point in time that we make this distinction that while all illness is a result of the fall, not all illnesses, be they physical or mental, can be directly tied to specific demonic influence in a person's life. We have seen Jesus casting out demons in the book of Mark already. And sometimes that that results in healing. And we have also seen him heal people with no mention of casting out of demons. It is important that we have this distinction. Because this passage brings us face to face with a detailed description of something that our culture balks at. You see, dear friends, there are unseen forces that have an impact on your day-to-day life. These evil spirits spoken of here seek your utter and complete destruction. They seek to isolate you. They seek to give you no rest. They seek to harm you. Not amongst the tombs, not by literally keeping you yelling, and not with stones. No, this is done most clearly in our lives through temptation to sin. When you fall to sin... Isn't that when you isolate yourself the most? When you don't want anyone to see you? Isn't that when your conscience will give you no rest? And isn't that when your actions are most injurious to yourself and to those around you? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 12. So what are we to do? I mean, if this really is real, if demonic malice is so great, what are you to do? How do you fight against something that you can't even see and have no means of wounding? Rest in the one who is master over the immaterial. Verse 6, now look at the meeting of malice and mercy. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. He could not be bound with chains. Yet here he lay at Christ's feet. Dear brothers and sisters, dear sweet children, please understand this. You have nothing to fear. He could not be bound. No one had the strength to subdue him. He crumples before Christ. Christ did not need to bind him. He fell down. Do you see the immense power disparity that is at play here? Jesus does not beckon this man. He does not call the demons. But almost magnetically they were drawn to him. Although I can guarantee you they would rather be any place else. It made me think of a power disparity that's a little more relatable. Uh, A woman named Odessa Clay. She was the mother of the famous boxer, Muhammad Ali. And though she was short 
and, and heavy set and not particularly strong or, or physically impressive, countless times she did what no other boxer was ever able to do. She put him to sleep. Now, she didn't use her fists. She didn't have to. She used her words, rooted in the truth of who she was. She was his mother. That's what mothers do. They put their children to bed. And it's the same reason that this demon now cowers before Christ because of who Jesus is, verses 7 and 8. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What have you to do with me? How do our paths cross? The implication, I have nothing to do with you. Now possibly this is due to the fact that this was a predominantly Gentile region. A region that therefore would have been outside of God's purview in this demon's understanding. But really, even given that, it is mainly because this evil spirit does not fully recognize who Christ is. And we have here another point of application, friends. Do do you ever find yourself falling prey to this line of thinking? I mean, what does God have to do with my sexuality, really? What does God have to do with my taxes, with my temper, with my fill-in-your-personal-blank here? May I remind you what the demon pays mere lip service to. Jesus is son of the most high God. Do you see the irony in the demon appealing to this name? He is the God who reigns over all. He is above all, overseeing all. No one is higher. He is God the most high. What a strange thing that is for the demon to appeal. A demon pleading God's name. And if it sounds odd, it's because it is odd. This demon has no right, no right to ask for anything in God's name, and no right to ask Jesus for anything, who is, of course, God himself. In fact, Jesus has complete and total authority over him. But those who read closely among you might might be led to ask a question then. If that's true, Riker... Why is this demon still in this man in our narrative? Verse 8, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Yet that hasn't happened yet. So if he has complete and total authority over demons, why is this demon still here? Very simply, to display the greatness of God's mercy, God's grace. Verse 9, and he asked him, saying, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. We are many. Now, this is a very well-known portion of Scripture. It's been featured in countless horror movies. It's featured in songs at times even. But what does it really mean in context? Does Jesus ask this demon his name because he does not know it? Because it somehow gives Jesus some power over it to be able to speak the name? No, friends, of course not. Christ doesn't need that. Christ has all power. No, this... Like the prayer before Lazarus' tomb that John records in his gospel is done for the benefit of those who are within earshot. This is not just one demon. This is many demons. 
a legion was somewhere around 6,000 troops. Some scholars say two, some say 12, but that's not the point here. Mark isn't trying to say this is how many demons were there. There were 6,000 demons, just that there was a plurality of demons. And now this plurality of de demons who speak through their one spokesdemon, as it were. It's why you'll see Mark interchangeably say they and he. They now, through the spokesdemon, continue to beg Jesus in verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, most likely, this is a request to be able to remain in this pagan Gentile area. Again, an area that they thought was outside of God's care, his concern. And of course, of course, we know, as it anyone who understand, understood God's covenants, that, that he would save people from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe. So God does care about this area. Now, you, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, you, you keep saying this is a Gentile area. H how do you know that? Uh, that's a really good question. That's something that I was wondering when I kept coming across this. Well, the, the simple answer is the text tells us with, with a little bit of reasoning, verses 11 through 13. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean pigs came out, and the unclean spirits, sorry, came out and entered the pigs. And the herd numbering 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So this is not just a herd of pigs. This is, this is a massive herd of 2,000 pigs. This is a large expense is not inexpensive to raise these types of animals. And if you remember anything about kosher law, what I bet you would remember is that Jews can't eat pork. So then it is reasonable to assume that these pigs, that were only really good for their meat, would someday be butchered and eaten. Otherwise, you wouldn't spend so much money. Well, if, if you're going to butcher and eat these pigs, someone has to be there to be able to eat them, which leads most scholars to believe this massive herd of pigs indicates this is an area that could eat pork, so it's Gentile, not Jewish. But notice here what, what happens to the pigs, friends. As soon as the unclean spirit entered them, they rushed down the steep bank and drowned in the sea. And this is what I was saying earlier, this very easily could have been the fate of this man. But by God's grace he was sustained, and now he has been delivered. The malice of the enemy was met by God's mercy incarnate and God's mercy won. Now our third movement. The message spreads. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. Now imagine being these people. You're out on a seemingly regular day. Just looking over the pigs. And then all of a sudden, they bolt. Are they running towards the, the, the water? Before you know it, the first one's over the edge. And then another, and another, and another, until all of them are gone. I imagine you would do exactly what they did. You, you would be like 
what's going on? You'd run and go tell them, hey, guess what I saw? Guess what I saw? Look at what I saw. Hey, you remember how we used to watch those pigs that you owned? Wait, what, what do you mean used to? Pigs that I owned? What, what had happened? And so those people, their herd, would want to come and see what happened. And what is it that they do see? Verses 15 and 16. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. What did they see? They saw him. They saw the one that, that must have terrorized many of them. And he looked utterly and shockingly and completely normal. He's not cutting himself or yelling. He's, he's sitting. He's even wearing normal clothes and he seems like he's in his right mind. And so they were afraid. Not the fear that they must have grown accustomed to around this man, but a fear of what could have had so powerful an effect on him. And, and just as that, that fear is setting in, and they're realizing who he is and wondering what in the world happened, people start to chatter about what happened between him and Jesus and other people about what happened to the pigs, and they start putting the pieces together, and their fear turns to utter terror. Verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They do not ask they beg. It is the same word that was used for how the demon was speaking to Jesus. And really their response is, is essentially the same. We don't want anything to do with you. Please, leave us alone. It is complete fear. It is a fear that comes from being entirely outmatched. I don't know if you've ever felt this way. I can remember being a young teenager and being surrounded by four larger, older, pugilistic teenagers. I remember feeling complete dread and fear because their numbers and their size made it clear that there was a huge power disparity here. They possessed much more physical power than I did. However, not everyone here in this town feels that way about Jesus' power. Not everyone is afraid of it. We have seen the demonic malice. We have seen the meeting of malice and mercy. And we have seen the message spread. Now finally, our fourth movement, verses 18 through 20, the making of a missionary. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. As Jesus is leaving now, this, this unnamed man, the one whom Jesus has freed, he begs that he could be with Jesus. And it's that same word again, with the same intensity, with, with the same chutzpah that the demon had when he implored Jesus that he would not leave this man that is standing before him. With the same intensity that the town implored Jesus to please leave us alone, now this man implores Jesus, can I please be with you? Perhaps it is because he is afraid that the demons would come back. 
However, I think it's something that we can all relate to much more. Isn't this exactly the response that you have when Christ's mercy is shown to you in a way that seems fresh and anew? Now, of course, Christ's mercy, God's mercy towards us is always fresh. It is always new, but we don't always have the wisdom to see it that way. But when in God's grace we do, isn't this exactly how you respond? You want more, more of him. You want to be with Jesus. And yet, you're still here. Verses 19 and 20. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home and to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. He begs. And Jesus tells him, no. No, you cannot come with me. You have work to do here. And so this man becomes the first missionary. Everyone else, don't tell them what I've done. But to this man, go, tell. Friends, and you do realize that this is why you are here, still breathing, on earth. You have work here to do. The Apostle Paul understood this well. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. There is work for you here. And I mean here at St. Andrews. Here with, with your family. Work with your co-workers. Work with your believing and non-believing friends. There is work to be done as we begin to open up at your kids' sports practices, in lines at the grocery store. Remember, no situation is an accident. No meeting is an accident. And of course, it will look different in your life when this principle is applied than it does in our text. For one, we do not live in a Roman city-state, Decapolis. For two, you're probably not as well known for your past as this man was for his. And that's okay. People probably will not marvel when you tell them what the Lord has done for you. And, and that's all right. Now, maybe you have a crazy history of who you were before you came to know Christ. Or maybe you only ever remember believing the gospel. Or maybe you came to the Lord and you have a story of being wayward and then coming back. The point is, friends, you don't need some sort of wild story to apply the balm of healing of the gospel. Christ will do his work through his word, so proclaim it. Encourage your downcast friend. Gently bring the wayward to a realization of their error. And when you're sharing, don't hide the ugly stuff. It is there that you show how Jesus has had mercy on you, tangible, real. Share, like this man was charged, how much Jesus has done for you. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, maybe even just a creeping doubt in the back of your mind that you don't want to let speak, Jesus hasn't done anything for me. Let me push back on that. 
he has done much for you. He has done more for you than you or I could ever understand. He sustains your life this very moment. He also restrains your sins from expressing themselves in the fullness that they could and even restrains the demons that wish nothing but your destruction. The master of all, material and immaterial, took material form, that of a man, becoming like one of us. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and then he died the death that your sins demand you die as he bore your sins on the cross. The third day he resurrected from the dead and then ascended into heaven where even now he intercedes for his saints. Why? He does not do so much because we are so great, but because the master of the immaterial is also God's mercy. Because God is merciful and abounding in love, he extends his mercy to you this morning. Take a hold of it. Awe at it. Adore it. And if you have not the faith to do that, ask him for it. For his mercy extends even there. Would you pray with me, friends? Merciful God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is through your word that you speak to your people. We ask that you would have mercy on us. Give us wisdom to see and understand how much you have done for us. Would the beauty of the gospel drive us to pursue holiness and to proclaim your truth? Would you give us courage to stand against the immaterial that seeks to harm us as we rest in the master of the immaterial? It is in his name that we pray. Amen.